The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage, and it's, it's my honor to be the guy this morning who is, who's going to be bringing the word. I want to welcome those of you that are here, and I know we got folks that tune in online, and we got men and women out in the overflow, and we're just really grateful for the opportunity to gather together this morning to sit under God's word preached, to worship together in unison. What a privilege, amen? Yeah, we are in a series, you can see on the banner behind me, we're calling it Deeper, And we're kind of asking that question, how do people grow? So for the last six weeks, we have been looking at different markers of discipleship, markers that we've identified as a church. And today I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 4. We are going to be uh, verses 19 through 26. And we are going to be looking at what it means for us in discipleship to practice authentic worship marked by relationship. This is the marker of discipleship that we are going to study and look at for the next few moments. I'm mindful of what John Stott said about worship. He said, true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. So it's a noble thing we aspire to wrap our hearts and minds around this morning. What is it for us to worship authentically, marked by relationship? As we look at our text today... These eight verses, John 4, verses 19 through 26, Jesus speaks about what kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. In fact, in these eight verses, we're going to see the word worship ten times. So follow along with me as I read verses 19 through 26. John 4. This is, by the way, at the well in Samaria... Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan woman at noon in the heat of the day. There was great hostility between Jews and Samaritans. It's a very unlikely conversation. And so we're going we're to jump in halfway through this conversation, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Ten times in our text, we see the word worship. That Greek word for worship, it simply, most simplistically means to show reverence by kneeling. By coming before something greater than yourself, a king, God, Jesus himself, to be on your face, prostrate, to kneel, to kiss the hand of. It's this picture that that John the Baptist, in the previous chapter, verse 30, chapter 3, John the Baptist is speaking about his relationship with Jesus. And he famously utters this about his relationship with Jesus. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. Sort of the the heart of the word for worship in chapter 4 is captured in that statement of John in the previous chapter. This is the picture of worship. He must increase and I must decrease. Let's together look at authentic worship marked by relationship. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are in the church this morning. And for those of us that have been church men and church women who've been in the church for considerable lengths of time, this just feels like something we have been talking about our whole lives. Worship, yeah. We go to worship services, we as Christians worship. And yet, God, I, I can't help but believe that, that God, I, I just confess that, that I'm still trying to fully understand what it means, God, that you call us to worship you in spirit and in truth. So, God, I ask whether we are men and women who've been in the church and have, have sought to worship you our whole lives, or whether we are men and women in this place seeking to know who you are and, and what it would mean for us to even consider worship. God, wherever we may be this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds by your spirit that we would understand what it means that you are searching for worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Meet us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Uh, there is a mega church in Wisconsin you no doubt have heard of. It's huge. Uh, over 80,000 people a Sunday gather to be a part of this, this, this mega church. And they broadcast their services all over the state, really all over the country, and even globally. And millions of people tune in on Sundays to engage with this mega church. Uh, uh, you probably have heard of the church, no doubt. They, they have a, a current spiritual leader who's pretty well known. He goes by the name of Aaron Rodgers. Have you heard of him? Uh, this, uh, this current religious group meets at a place called Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They, they go by the name Green Bay Packers. 81,000 fans on a Sunday. Millions tune in and watch the game on Sundays. I joke, I joke, I kid, I kid. But... <laughs> I'm a Packer fan, uh, but I'm telling you, I did not understand fandom until I moved to the state of Wisconsin. And I realized the entire mood of the entire state is forever linked to the success or lack thereof of the Packers. When they win, everyone's happy. When they lose, everyone's sad. Everything bends and yields to the schedule. Churches, schools, everything waits for the Packers schedule to come out. And everyone builds their lives around when kickoff is. They kick off today at 10 a.m. Right now, there'd be no one in church if we were in Wisconsin because they would be at home watching the Packers. The point of me sharing this is that we as human beings are hardwired for worship. We, we have been designed by God, and our primary function is to be men and women who worship. We are, we are handmade by God to worship. In life, we are going to worship someone or something. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. I wonder, as we gather here this morning, now, my guess is most of you, since you're here not watching football this morning, is that most of you understand that. I also know the relentless way in which the enemy is constantly trying to divert our attention from the Lord and onto other things. And so I wonder, as we gather here today as a, as a group of family and friends, I wonder what or who is vying for your attention and for your worship as we gather here in this place this morning. I wonder what or who you might be tempted to revere more than God. I wonder to what or to whom might you be tempted to ascribe more worth than you ascribe to God. I wonder. I've been doing some self-reflecting as I've been preparing for this morning's teaching. I was driving down uh, to church this morning with my wife and we were chatting about this. I think about my life and I think about what area in my life am I tempted to divert my worship or divert my attention or to have more reverence than I do for God. And it's been the same my whole life. Do any of you guys have an area of habitual sin that continues to rear its head no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray? It feels like there's this thorn that God gives you in your flesh so that you know that you need him. I feel like that's what this area is in my life. In my life, I continually fight the temptation to revere the perception of others more than I revere the perception of God. I personally, maybe it comes with being an upfront guy who teaches in front of crowds. There's a part of my personality that so desperately, when I'm not healthy and I'm not well and I'm not walking with the Lord and I'm at my worst, there's a part of my personality that is overly obsessed or concerned with what people think of me. And if I'm honest, there's been many times in my life as a pastor I've stepped off the stage and I've been more worried about what the audience thought than what God thought of the teaching I just delivered. It's gross. I'm tempted to care more about what people think of me than what God thinks of me and and what that does, on my worst days, on my worst days, that makes a, vertical that is hor uh, a worship that is horizontal and a, ver and a worship that is not vertical. I worship, but I'm not worshiping him. It's misdirected. I don't know what you call it, worship of self, worship of reputation, worship of approval. I'm not sure what you call it. But what I do know is this. When I get caught in those unhealthy cycles in my life, it takes my attention off the Lord. It misdirects my worship elsewhere. And wherever your worship is directed, it, exp it exposes where and who you ascribe the most worth. You see, we're hardwired for worship. And our worship will be directed somewhere. For some of us in this room, we'll struggle with all sorts of, of false worships. Whether it's worshiping the spouse or the hope of a spouse or a significant other. Maybe it's the, the worship of freedoms or rights you believe belong to you or the worship of children or careers or sports team or bank accounts or political parties or clubs, whether figurative or literal. We're hardwired to worship. And there is only one who is worthy of our worship. Amen? 
At Heritage Christian Fellowship, we say that we are a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's our mission statement. It's on everything, and we repeat it often because that's genuinely what our mission is. And, and so today I want to go through, like we have been in this series, through a series of questions, and some of these are review. So we define what a, a disciple is here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who is leading others to follow Jesus. This is our goal, is to be these kinds of disciples. And so that's what a disciple is. And so then we talk about discipleship. That's our second question. What is discipleship? What is this process of becoming and growing as a disciple of Jesus? We put it this way. We say that in discipleship, we walk with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus, so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. That's what discipleship is. And this whole series is designed to help us have firm footing on that journey of walking with Jesus and being made more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did so that God may receive the glory. And for those of you who have been in the church, who've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you you recognize and I recognize this journey with the Lord is often one or two or three steps forward and one or two or three steps back. But the hope is that over the course of a lifetime, the trajectory is one that, that takes us more into the likeness of Jesus. As we learn to surrender all of who we are to God as he shapes us and molds us and forms us more into the image of his son. And so that's why we're doing this series. And so for the last six weeks, we've looked at what it means for us to, to, to practice God-glorifying stewardship. We looked at authentic relationships marked by love. In the last three weeks, Pastor Jeremy has taught us about gospel purity and mature doctrine, what it means for us as disciples to live a missional lifestyle. Last week, if you were here, and I encourage you to listen to the podcast if you weren't, Jeremy talks about what is emotional health. And he says, we cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. And he makes a strong argument for that and gives us this picture of what it means for us in our inner world to be molded and shaped and formed into the image of Jesus. Today we look at authentic worship marked by relationship. And in the next two weeks, I'll be teaching about what it means for us to have a godly character. And lastly, we'll talk about what it means for us to have a willing submission to God. But for today, we look to worship. Louis Giglio defines worship this way. He says, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. It's kind of wordy. I like the definition. I'm going to borrow from that here in a few minutes as I provide for you our definition. But let's just kind of ask that question. I, I, just, I just want you to consider in your mind, okay, what's worship? What is worship? What does it mean to worship? Worship is, is, is the whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength responding to God, beholding his glory. That, that's part of worship. Worship is, it's only possible by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us that we might be worshipers. Worship is centered upon the gospel. Our worship is is focused to the face of Jesus Christ. It's informed and directed by God's word. We don't make up how to worship. The word of God informs rightly our worship. It informs who this God is that we worship. Worship is expressed both personally and corporately. We do it privately and we do it in community with one another. This is all worship. And so all that to take us to our third question. For the sake of our church, where we are as we move forward, the question, what is authentic worship marked by relationship? And here's the definition I'm going to give to that today. It should be on the screen as well. Authentic worship is offering the whole of who we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to the whole of who God is for all that he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and do. It's my best effort to have a a holistic definition of what is worship. I'll say that again. Authentic worship is offering the whole of who we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to the whole of who God is for all that he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and do. And what you hear me say over and over today is a pared-down version of that definition. I'll say to you ten times today, worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. Worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. Archbishop of Canterbury, this theologian by the name of William Temple, he he said this about worship. I find this insightful. William Temple writes, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, 
the nourishment of mind by his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of his will to his, uh, the surrender of my will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, which is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore, worship is the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which our original sin which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. So worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. And that takes us to question number four. We've asked these questions throughout each of these teachings. We asked the question, the fourth question is, how did Jesus model this for us? As we look to the Gospels, as we look to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the, the, the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how did Jesus model authentic worship marked by relationship for us? He's both our Savior and our model. How did he model this for us? And that, I find this is a hard question to, to, to think about. Maybe you do too. I was thinking about this this week, and it's, I'm not quite sure how to think of Jesus worshiping. Because he was fully God. And so did he worship himself? And I'm struggling with that in my mind theologically. And how are we to think about how Jesus modeled worship? Our God is triune and Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He was in perfect relationship. He is in perfect relationship with the Father and the Son, the other persons of the Trinity, or the Father and the Spirit rather. And so there's this beautiful picture of relationship in the Godhead. We've talked about that in previous weeks. But Jesus was fully God, but, but he was also fully man. Jesus was fully man, and in his humble humanity, we see him in intimate relationship with the Father, withdrawing to quiet places to pray, to connect, to worship the Father. We see Jesus in his humanity, uh, uh, in word and in deed, doing the will of the Father, pleasing the Father. In his life and in his ministry, we see Jesus offering the whole of who he is, no more so than when he allows himself to be the atoning sacrifice, the, the sinless, spotless lamb who died in our place. The life of Jesus was lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus was and is the ultimate example of what the Apostle Paul calls in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a living sacrifice that is pleasing to God. I see this in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is in the upper room. It's right before his arrest and betrayal. And there's this long prayer that is recorded of Jesus in, in John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And I just look at how Jesus begun this prayer to the Father. He lifted his eyes, it says in John 17, 1, to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Boy, there's a lot of theology in those few verses. Not the least of which is this picture of Jesus having a vertical orientation to his life. He was chiefly concerned with the glory of the Father. He glorified the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. Jesus' life was perfectly lived for the glory of the Father. In word and in deed, Jesus modeled perfect, authentic worship. And if worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness, then Jesus nailed it. That takes us to question number five. And this is the big question. What did Jesus teach about authentic worship? Marked by relationship. It taught much. Let's go back to the text that we've chosen for today. This text in John chapter 4 is, is a part of a longer conversation that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman. Now you probably know the story of the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds. There was great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus is there with his disciples in Samaria. And he's at a well. He's at Jacob's well, in fact. During the heat of the day when no one would come to the well. And this woman comes to the well, most likely trying to avoid human contact. And she comes and she sees a rabbi, a religious teacher of Jewish law, sitting there. And she approaches them and it starts this conversation between her and Jesus. And they start to play this little game back and forth. He's kind of holding Jesus at arm's length. And then Jesus sort of breaks through all the pretense. And he says, no, you live with the sixth man. You've been married five times. He, he doesn't shame her or condemn her. He just wants her to know, I know you. 
and I see you. And they have this honest conversation then about who Jesus is and what is worship. And they have this conversation about water and living water, metaphorically speaking. He begins to say to her, like, I bring you satisfaction that never ends. I, I will put a spring of life-giving water, life-giving water within you that will never be quenched. And then she starts talking about the location of worship. And she says, I know that you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, in the temple, on Mount Moriah. But us Samaritans, we worship here on Mount Gerizim, uh, in our own temple. And there's a question about where does worship belong and, 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 and what's the location, the space, and the place for worship is, is taking place. And then that gets us to verse 23 when Jesus is trying to just set her straight. And he says, the hour is coming, woman. The hour is coming and it is now here when true worshipers who worship the Father, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, he says to her. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so what does this say to us about worship today? What is worship? I want you to write a few things down if you're a note taker. First off, I want you to see that worship is both broad and narrow. Worship is both narrow and broad. Worship is to be directed in one specific direction. We are to worship the Father. We're hardwired to worship. We're hardwired to worship the Father. We misdirect our worship in other things, but worship that pleases the Father is to be directed to the Father. It's narrow in that sense. But then worship is also broad. It's no longer confined to a space and a place. It's not about Mount Moriah. It's not about Mount Gerizim. Worship is, is exploding, it's expanding. Jesus says to her in verse 21, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's talking about there's a temple in Mount Gerizim, there's a temple at Mount Moriah, and what Jesus is saying, there's a third temple. It's called my regenerate, redeemed people. And I will place my Holy Spirit no longer in a fixed temple, in a fixed location. My spirit will dwell on the hearts and in the lives and animate the people of God. And they will not be stuck in one place. They will populate the earth. And then Jesus, in, as he gets ready to ascend to heaven, do you remember what he says to his disciples? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the very ends of the earth. No longer is worship contained and in, 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 in stuck in one place at one time. It is to be spread. And then he even says this in verse 24. He says that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's the logic of that statement? God is spirit, Jesus says. God is non-material. The logic here is, why would God limit his worship to a material place if God himself is non-material? Or to go to the ends of the earth. And so it's broad in this sense. It's narrow in that it's to be a worship of the Father. It's broad in that the world is to be filled with the worship of God. I read this week that the very fact that God freed our worship from one location makes missions possible. The span of the Old Testament instructs Israel to stay in the promised land and to invite the nations to the temple to worship. Yet, the new covenant, just by the redeeming blood of Jesus, the liberating blood of Jesus, it completely flips this command. God now tells his people to go to the nations to plant churches within foreign cultures. Jesus teaches that worship is a broad practice. And I just got back from Uganda, so I'm all fired up. I'm all fired up about what I saw in the city of Mbarara in western Uganda. I saw faithful, godly, sacrificial saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, at tremendous cost to themselves, planting gospel-proclaiming, disciple-making, Bible-believing churches. It was incredible. The movement of God is on all four corners of our planet. Amen. Worship is both broad and narrow. He says also that worship is in spirit and in truth. He says true worship is done in spirit and in truth. True worshipers will worship the Father, he says. What does it mean that, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit? That word spirit can mean two different things. It can mean spirit as in the Holy Spirit. It can mean the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. That word can also just simply mean spirit. Like the, 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 that, that which animates a person, the heart of who they are, their affections. It can mean both things, and there's debate about which is being used here. If it's just about the, what animates us, if it's about our affections, what lives within our hearts, the idea here is that, that we must worship God in spirit. It means that, among other things, that our worship must originate from within, 
from the heart, our worship must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and our gratitude for all that he has done. God forbid our worship to ever be robotic or dead or lifeless or mechanical. Worship can look any number of ways in any number of locations in any number of traditions. Regardless of how it looks on the outside, worship must be infused with our affections. It must be an expression of our authentic love for God. It must be an overflow of real relationship with God. Our, our worship is to be marked by relationship. It's a willingness to, to truly know God and let him know us, to, to make ourselves available to him. And if it's about Holy Spirit, in spirit and truth, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.3 said to worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. And the truth is that worship cannot happen apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that makes us alive. Dead people don't worship. I read this week that it is the Holy Spirit who awakens us awakens us in an understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It is the Holy Spirit that stirs us to celebrate and to rejoice and to praise God. It is the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see and savor all that God is in his son Jesus. And God willing, it is the Holy Spirit that organizes our gatherings as we gather in this place to lift our praises to God that he might be glorified as an outflow and an overflow of a heart that authentically loves him. We must worship in spirit. We also must worship in truth. True worshipers, Jesus said, worship the Father in spirit and truth. Worship that is in truth must conform to what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. Our worship must be informed by who God is as revealed to us by God's word. Our worship must be anchored to the truth of the Holy Scriptures. We don't get to make it up. God forbid that in this church or any church we ever utter with our our lips or sing songs that are untrue. Worship is never to be bent by our fleeting desires or our fickle emotions or our cultural trends or the winds of politics. Worship is always to be formed by what has always been true. If our worship ever becomes inconsistent with what God has revealed to us in the scriptures, God help us. We sometimes think of our worship as a pursuit of God. I know I do. I think of my worship sometimes as a seeking after God, a trying to grab God and bring him down to me. But the text tells us something different. The text tells us that it is God who seeks us. Look at the second part of verse 23 or 24. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It is the Father who is seeking men and women who worship him in spirit and in truth. If we worship in spirit without truth, we are liable to be swept away by false doctrines, false teachers, false gospels. If you worship in truth without spirit, we become Pharisees. And we proclaim him with our, our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Our worship must be in spirit and in truth. So what does that look like practically? What does it mean for us to worship in spirit and truth on a very tangible and practical level? If you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews gives us a very practical insight into what this worship ought to look like. At the very last chapter of Hebrews, the author is talking about what it means for us to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He's instructing us on worship, and he says this in verses 15 and 16. Through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he defines what that is. He said that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, the author of Hebrews says. So the author says that this this true sacrifice that that is a praise to God is both the fruit of our lips, and it's the good that we do, and it's what we share with others. So true worship is what we what we say. It's the fruit of our lips. You and I engage in authentic worship when we sing to God, when we speak of God, when we pray to God, when we share the hope of God, when we proclaim the gospel, when we read the scriptures, when we teach the Bible, what we say is worship. It's also what we do. It's to do good and to share with, to share what you have. And so worship is also stewarding our time and our talent and our treasure. Worship is serving others in the name of Jesus. It's exercising your gifts in ministry. It's helping the least of these. 
Worship is loving and serving your spouse. It's caring for your children. It's caring for your aging parents. It's going to work and doing your job to the glory of God day in and day out. It's befriending your neighbor. It's what we do. It's what we say. It's both narrow and broad. It's in spirit and in truth. It's what we say and what we do. And we cannot escape this last aspect of worship that others have captured and we see in the scriptures. There's this other aspect of worship that it is the most joyous of all endeavors. And it truly brings the only lasting satisfaction. John, as he spe- or Jesus, as he's speaking to this woman by the well, he's talking about water, and she's a little confused, and he says, I'll, I'll give you this water that will never dry. It'll be like a spring of, of living water that will well up within you. And she says, I want that, so I never have to come to the well again. He's like, you don't get it. I'm speaking in metaphor. And what he says to her in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4, he says, everyone who drinks this water, the world's water, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see the picture there? See what Jesus is saying to this woman? He's like, every human craving, every human thirst is perfectly satisfied in him. You've heard the phrase that even when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's in search of God. Every human quest, every human hunger, every human thirst is, is, is fully and completely satisfied in him. This is the picture of worship. It is this joyous thing that gives us great satisfaction. Preacher John Piper famously has said a thousand times, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. John Piper also said that the inner essence of worship is to know God truly. And then respond from the heart to that knowledge by, by valuing God, by treasuring God, by prizing God, by enjoying God, by being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God will overflow in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love serving others for the sake of Christ. The Westminster Catechism, the shorter Westminster Catechism, famously asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? The answer comes back, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the picture here of worship as the the most joyous of endeavors. Worship as that which brings truly and lasting satisfaction. I think David in Psalm 116 sort of captures this. The last verse of Psalm 116, David writes to God, he says, God, you have made known to me the path of life. God, he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So worship is all these things. And let's not forget that worship will never cease. It will go on for all of eternity. About five or six weeks ago, we did a series in the Psalms and we taught on Psalm 150. And I, and I shared this with you in that teaching. I, I said that there will be a day in glory when we will join all the other saints in the heavenly host and we will gather around the throne of Christ and in unison we will all lift our voices of praise with new and perfect melody. Together for all of eternity, we will sing to God and we will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to be. We will sing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will be on our face before the throne of God, on our face, prostrate before him in in holy, reverent worship. And we will say, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so today when we gather in this place, and when you go home and you engage in acts of private worship, as we lift our hearts and minds and voices to Jesus, we are practicing We are rehearsing for eternity. And so this is what worship is. It's narrow and broad. It's spirit and truth. It's both words and actions. It's joy and satisfaction. Simply put, worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. And if the desire of Jesus is for his disciples to worship in this way, that leads us to our sixth question. Where are you Where am I? Where are we concerning authentic worship? How are we doing? 
It's one of the higher rated areas for us as a church. For those of you that took our discipleship survey, uh, on a one to five, we rate ourselves a a 3.83. We responded favorably to these statements. And consider these statements today as we re-look at authentic worship. And ask yourself, how true is this of me? I consistently practice spiritual disciplines like reading scripture, prayer, private worship, fasting as a means of connecting to God from the heart rather than religious duty. Ask yourself, my my committed involvement in my local church is motivated by a desire to love God deeply and to love his people the way that he does. Ask yourself, I, I listen to teaching so that I can grow as a friend and disciple of Jesus instead of simply desiring to grow in knowledge. Or lastly, my Christian service is a loving act of worship. It is not an obligation I perform in order to alleviate guilt or to look spiritual. So how are you doing? How are we doing? How am I doing in the area of authentic worship marked by relationship? Let's, let's do what we've done each week. Let's, let's make a scale here of one to five. Failing to flourishing. And I want you to consider where you might be in the next few minutes. What is, what is failing in this area? Well, I just use the phrase, no worship. If you're, if you're a one in this area of your life as a disciple, you, there are no spiritual disciplines that are present. No real effort is being made. There's an inward focus to your life, and if you're really honest, there's not a real concern for how to worship God. If that's you, that's where you are. You're a one. If you're a two, you're beginning to worship. You're, you have a sense of religious obligation. You're beginning to, to prioritize life, to be less focused on the world and self and more focused on God. But if you're honest, your expressions often feel more like religious duty than a joyful offering, but that puts you at a two. If you're a three, you, you're, you're experiencing regular worship. You recognize that God is to be the central part of your life. You're actively utilizing practices and disciplines uh, personally and corporately trying to foster worship in your life. You agree that you want him to be the center of your life. You're not killing it necessarily, but you have that mental agreement. You're a three. If you're a four, you're living as worship. You regularly and consistently engage in personal and corporate worship. You're seeing all of your life as an offering to the Lord to be given back to him for his glory. If that's you, you're, you're, you're at a four. And if you're at a five, you are perfectly worshiping. Your life is given fully to God in every single arena as a perfect offering. You experience deep and abiding joy and satisfaction as you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So on a scale of one to five, where might you put yourself today? Write it down. Make a mental note. Not trying to shame anybody. Just want us to figure out where we are. We don't know where we're going until we, until we know where we're at. The whole point of this series is growth. If you're a one, you're a one. Big deal. Let's start moving. Let's start growing. If you're a three, you're a three. Great. Let's start moving. Let's grow. Let's figure out what it means for us to worship God authentically in a way that's marked by relationship. Let's take that next step. And as I think about this, it's, it's really the case with any of our markers of discipleship. We're six weeks in right now. And I want us to just remind ourselves that this is not a box that we check. This is not something that is marked with arrival. Uh, we, we are being invited into this lifelong pursuit of depth and growth. It's not something we do and then move on to the next thing. This is an invitation into a journey of growth that never ends. My fear is that we might see these markers of discipleship of tasks, as tasks to be accomplished, but they're not. This is a lifelong and all-of-life endeavor. Theologian John Frame said this. He says, in one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life, seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else, but rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. Worship is what we're made to do. We're hardwired to worship. In both discipleship and in worship, every arena of life is to be given back to God as an offering. Think about it through the lens of this teaching series. Our time and our talent and our treasure is to be given back to God as we learn God-glorifying stewardship. Our relationships are to be given back to God that we might have authentic relationships marked by love. Our, Our minds and our beliefs are to be given back to God that we might have a pure gospel and a mature doctrine. Our our vocations, what we do with our lives outside the church is to be given back to God that we might live a missional lifestyle. Our inner world, our emotions are to be given back to God that we might become mature. Our affections 
And our thoughts are to be given back to God that our worship might be authentic and it might be marked by a relationship. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about our character and our willing submission to God given to him as an offering, as an act of worship. And I know, man, when I read through that, it just feels unattainable sometimes. I, I sometimes look at what God desires of me and I look at where I'm at and I can just sometimes feel a little bit deflated, but we don't need to be deflated. Our God is a God of grace. He invites us into this journey with him. And so how, how, how do we grow as authentic worshipers? Well, get shame out of the equation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, memorize it, tattoo it, write it in your Bible. There's no shame in this conversation. But there's an opportunity for us to lift our eyes from the horizontal and focus on the vertical and begin to engage in authentic worship marked by a relationship. And to, to do this, I don't want to just skip to a bunch of pragmatic things that we can do. In order for us to experience authentic worship, we have to begin by agreeing in our hearts and minds that only he is worthy of our worship. It has to begin there. It begins with a posture. Tim Keller says that the word worship is from the Old English worth-ship. Which means this is ascribing of the highest worth. Keller says, whatever you value or love the most, whatever is your greatest source of significance and security, you are worshiping that in your heart. So how can you and me and we, how can we grow in authentic worship marked by relationship? Well, we have to begin by recognizing the absolute worth of God. He is utterly worthy. He's the only one who is worthy. And the more he is elevated in our lives, the more we pursue authentic and honest relationship with him. And then our worship begins to take shape. Again, I was in Uganda for the last week or so. And I just watched and listened and interacted to these beautiful people. And I remember on our last day there, our last full day there, I was sitting with all the church planters. And we're, we really want to foster a real relationship with these men and women. We don't want it to be the rich Americans coming in with our resources and rescuing and saving the day and then, and, then, and then buzzing out. We don't want that. That's not our desire at all. We have resources. We want to share it. But we don't want that kind of relationship. It's toxic. It's not healthy. We want a real relationship. A loving body of Christ, brother and sister, arms linked relationship with what God is doing in Embarara. We want, we want to walk with them as they walk with us. And so the question was for them, it's like, they said, we feel insecure at times because we just don't always want to be asking for resources. We want to serve our brothers and sisters in, in Milwaukee, or, or rather in Medford. How do we do that? Milwaukee, strike that. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I was like, I was talking to this guy named Joffrey, who's this amazing church planner in, in Uganda. And I said, you know, Maybe this is speaking generally, but in America, we have much possessions. But if I'm honest, when I look around, we have little joy. In Uganda, you have very little possessions. But when I look around, you have much joy. That's how you help us. You model for us authentic worship, marked by joy. I want you to get a taste of what I experienced when I was over there. I put together a few, minutes, a few a little video of four worship experiences in corporate gatherings that I had in Uganda. This is the corporate part of worship. But you just recognize these are people with nothing. And this is them before their God. them. I said, in America, we don't dance in church. They're like, you don't dance in church? <laughs> well, well, some churches, heritage, not so much. Uh, man, yeah, we have so much, and I sometimes think the, the resources that we have been given, these blessings, um, they hinder our recognition of the dependence we actually live with. I think in a, in a certain way, their lack of resource is actually a gift from God because they're under no illusion on whom they depend. And we see it reflected in their worship. 
You know what? I see it here, though. I do. I see beautiful expressions of authentic worship in our midst. I do. I hear it every Sunday when I gather with you guys to sing. Sometimes I just really love to stop singing so I can hear the men and women around me. And I hear the collective voices of the saints at Heritage being lifted to God as an offering. And I imagine that we're gathered around the throne in heaven one day and I'll hear the saints, the voices of all the saints in unison singing praises to God. I, I love the way we worship at Heritage. I see, I see worship, authentic worship, being lived out here in so many beautiful ways. I saw it a couple of weeks ago as Kathy and her team gathered with 50-plus women in the hub to study the Psalms for an entire day as men and women within the context of Christian community studied the Word of God. It was beautiful. I see it experienced on Thursday mornings when I gather with a handful of guys at 6.30 in the morning as we study God's word, guys dragging themselves out of bed to meaningfully engage with the word of God. I I see it in Uganda when I saw Pastor Aaron and I saw Fred, these two brothers of mine, my, my ministry partners, just sacrificing their sleep and their health and their time to show love, to engage with and encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ. I see it when 13 men from Lead gather and give up an entire Saturday to study theology that they might be better equipped to serve the king. I, I see it in the way in which Heritage identified, raised up, laid hands on, and send out Sam Peck and, and a host of others to, to Grant's Pass to plant a church for the glory of God. I see it everywhere. I see it in how the people of heritage give themselves for the sake of the gospel in hidden and unseen ways and in small ways and in not so small ways. So I see beautiful expressions of authentic worship, church. Be encouraged by that. And as you're gathered here today and we're asking this question, how how can I grow? How can we grow in this area? For some of you, fostering growth in the area of authentic worship will mean practicing disciplines of engagement. Being committed to that, being disciplined about disciplines of engagement. What I mean by that is, for some of you, it's going to be about prioritizing personal study of Scripture, prioritizing corporate worship, pursuing biblical fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. For some of you, it's disciplining your prayer life. It's it's, it's stewarding your gifts for the glory of God. It's teaching and it's serving others. For some of you, your next step in growing in the area of authentic worship will be less visual and seen. It'll be hidden. It'll be practicing disciplines of abstinence. It'll have to do with withdrawal and and, and fasting and silence and pursuing solitude and secrecy and chastity and depriving yourself for the sake of hearing the voice of God. For some of you, it's learning to see your vocation not as a throwaway eight hours of your day. For some of you, growing in authentic worship is recognizing that your vocation is your God-given place on this planet to give glory to God, to serve Him, to worship Him, even as you do a godless work. For some of you, it's honestly contending with the idols in your life that are currently getting your worship. It's an honest assessment of where you are and what you revere and where you're ascribing worth so that you can confess and repent and turn your eyes back to him. All of which are simply meant to stir our affections that we might worship in spirit and fill our hearts and minds that we might worship in truth. Remember, worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. And finally, let me finish with this. One last question. Question eight. How can we help each other grow in authentic worship? As disciples of Jesus Christ, how can you and I, how can we collectively as the body here at Heritage, how can we help each other grow in authentic worship? Like I said earlier, I I get concerned that when we do a series like this that we begin to sort of silo and separate and and see these things as tasks to be accomplished or we see them as a church program. And it's not. These are... These markers of discipleship that we're unearthing, these aren't just something we do and then move on. These are interwoven practices, aspects of discipleship that we will engage with the rest of our time on this side of glory. And worship will be engaged with for all of eternity. And so it's, it's, it's learning to be God-glorifying stewards, and it's learning to have authentic relationships marked by love. It's, it's practicing these things. It's, 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 it's studying the Word of God that we might have gospel purity and mature doctrine. It's living a missional lifestyle, befriending people, seeing the, the, the stranger as a neighbor, the neighbor as friend, and, and leading the friend of the family of God. It's, it's, it's pursuing emotional health and doing that, that soul work, that inner world soul work that we might mature and be the men and women God called us to be. It's, it's authentic worship. It's godly care. Character. It's a willing submission to God. And so how, how, can we, how, can we, how can we encourage one another in this? Because in a certain sense, it feels gargantuan. Like, I don't know how to do that. Well, it's, it's much simpler than you think. It's not about doing eight things. It's just not. It's very simple. 
John Newton, the, the, the English slave trader who famously became a Christian and a minister and who most famously wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he was one time asked about, about how someone can grow deeper in the Lord. Asked the very question that we're asking today. Someone said, how can I grow deeper in the Lord? And here's what John Newton writes. He says, the best advice I can send or the best wish I can form for you is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the apostle which are just now upon my mind, looking unto Jesus. He's quoting Hebrews 12.2. He said, the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Looking unto Jesus is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude. So the simple question, how can we help one another grow in the area of authentic worship? We grab our brothers and sisters by their downtrodden chins, by their idol-worshiping chins, by their distracted chins, and we lift their faces to fix their eyes vertically on the one who is worthy of their worship. We enter into relationship, humble relationship, vulnerable relationship that invites our brother and sister to reach across the table and lift our chin to behold Jesus. It's that simple. That's what we do. It's vulnerable, honest, others-focused community. The more we look to Jesus and not the world, the more we see his worth and the more we learn to worship. And so to this question about how can we help one another engage in authentic worship, the answer is this simple. Continue to lift the chin of your brother and sister. Continue to speak the worth of God to one another. Preach the gospel daily to yourself and to others. Expose the idols and tear them down as an act of love for your brothers and sisters. Share scripture have it on your lips with your brothers and sisters. Serve together to glorify God. Be accountable to one another as we look unto Jesus. And together we learn that worship is offering the whole of who we are to the whole of who God is in response to his worthiness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful that you allow us week in and week out to gather in this place to sit under the authority of your word. God, to enter into to worship, corporate worship together with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. God, I ask this morning for those of us that are in you, that know you, that desire to make much of you, God, that you would lift our chins. God, do it by your spirit. Do it with a brother or sister in Christ who, who, who grabs our face and, and, and tilts our head heavenward, God. But by whatever means, God, allow us to fix our gaze upon you, God, that we might worship you with the whole of who we are for the whole of you are in response to your utter worthiness, God. And for those in this room today who've never understood or known or, or considered what it means that they are made to worship and made to worship you. God, I just pray by your spirit in this place and in this time right now, God, you would open the eyes of the blind. God, you would soften the heart of the hard-hearted. God, you would loosen up the ears of the deaf in God and you would allow them to behold Jesus today in this place right now. They would see Jesus, the son of the living God, the sinless sacrifice, the, the substitute who bore their sin and went to the cross and died in their place, who conquered sin and death and who is alive today and who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who beckons our worship. God, I pray that you would open our minds to the truth of the gospel. And for those who've never known you, God, today, right now in this place, they would confess you as Lord. God, they would confess with their lips that you are Lord and they would believe in their hearts, God, that you have raised him from the dead that they might worship you. And God, for the next few moments as we stand to our feet and as we lift our voices, God, may this not be about anybody but you. God, would you hear our singing, both the audible singing and the expressions of our heart. God, may that be an offering unto you in response to your worthiness for your glory. Amen.